the dominant use of fire in the Bible is undoubtedly judgment. And where, uh, you know, on those uh, several occasions where the scriptures take the idea of fire and re- refer to it as something that's, you know, like gold, your your faith like gold is being, which though it perishes is in the fire, you know, et cetera, but your faith will come through that uh, in, and, and be purified. Um, the, it's, a, it's a secondary use of the idea of fire is, um, you know, the associated with the fallen state of this world, uh, which is under judgment insofar as it impacts the lives of people who want to serve God. And it's like, well, okay, God will take even the bad things of this world, which stand under his judgment. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. Jake here with my co-host, David Campbell. David, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Once again, you are in the United Kingdom. Are you on a uh, preaching tour? What are you doing over there? Yep, I am. Back back in the cathedral, ancient cathedral city of uh, Durham, where I, I did my PhD and I planted a church. And we're back with that church, which... 40 odd years later is doing just fantastic. Wow. So it's been, that's so great. That's awesome. Um, what have you been talking about while you've been there? Discipleship. Great. <laughs> A necessary subject for our day. It sure is. Um, okay. So I wanted to talk to you today about judgment. Let's begin with a, a toxic theology. Um, and then we'll go from there into a passage in the Bible. Uh, and talk all about this subject. So here's a a tweet that says, if a loving God exists, then hell doesn't. If a loving God does not exist, then hell doesn't. Either way, hell does not exist. This thought was the beginning of me being okay. So obviously this person has a great deal of trouble with the ideal uh, idea of hell being a reality where uh, people would go, um, and he sees it totally at odds with the existence of a loving God. This is uh, not unique to this one person on Twitter. There's a lot of people that feel that way that have trouble reconciling the idea of uh, hell and judgment and God being loving. Let's talk about that today because I think um, it's something that a lot of younger Christians have a tough time with. Well, you know, the obvious question that I'd ask someone like that is, well, then why did Jesus? Because I can't see if that were the case, that hell doesn't exist, and the judgment doesn't exist. There's absolutely zero reason for God to have sent his son into this world. Jesus' ministry um, had no value. Hmm. Uh, So... People just don't think it through. It doesn't take much to think through, but this is the shallowness of the you know age that we're living in, that people haven't even gotten any idea of the basics. And, um, you know, another question that rises is, uh, would a loving God force someone to be in relationship with him if they didn't want to? Mm-hmm. let's put it that way and throw that question back at this individual. Uh, so uh, do we have free will? Uh, did God create us with the ability to reject him, uh, to lead a life separate from him? Or do we not have that ability, in which case we're robotic or un- our, our will is under God's control? It's not free. And, you know, if you really followed it through, uh, it raises all these questions mm-hmm. that, um, that, you know, that, that undermine the sort of easy uh, way out that this type of person is saying is that, well, I don't like the idea of judgment mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem to, to um, 
cohere with the idea of love. Uh, that's a very, very, very superficial uh, analysis of the world as we see it. Uh, so, you know, does God really accept what uh, people like Hitler or Putin do? Does that make no difference to God? Um, though there's no judgment, makes no difference to God. But it makes no difference to God, then there's no difference between right and wrong. See, so people just don't think all these things through. You know, they, they uh, and, and the, the answers to the questions of life are not always the sort of, you know, easiest, most facile uh, things that first come to somebody's mind. Uh, reality and life are a little bit more complex than that. One of the ways that they uh, try to get around the idea of uh, the existence of hell and judgment um, to your point of if those if those were not realities, then Jesus would not have needed to come. And to that, often a progressive Christian will say, well, he did need to come. He just he didn't come for the reasons that Orthodox Christianity says he came. So in other words, uh, they they take a totally different view on atonement. There's no sense of vicarious or substitutionary nature to the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, it is only, uh, you know, a moral example, or it is uh, Christus Victor, which I affirm Christus Victor. In fact, I affirm a lot of the atonement theories. I think they're all true. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't speak so generally. I think a lot of them are true. Um, but uh, I also believe that vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement, is absolutely true as well, um, and a central feature of what happened on the cross. But if it were not true, then I, I can see how they can say, well, things like hell and judgment are not real. We didn't need to be saved from hell because that's not why Jesus came. But it still doesn't answer the question, why did God send his son into this world to die the most hideous death when he didn't have to? On their analysis, he didn't have to. And that puts a big question mark behind the morality of God Himself, mm. uh, which I think is a is a, is a, a um, harder question. A, a more it's a harder question to answer. Um, it's a worse dilemma. Let me put it that way. Mm. To put a question mark beside the goodness of God Himself is a bigger question mark than and leaves us with a bigger problem than the existence of hell does. Mm -hmm. And if you say that God was that kind of torturous person that he would send his son into the world in the knowledge that he would die in that manner when he didn't have to, then we're left with a God that none of us would want to serve anyway. He certainly would not be the loving God that this imaginary person assumes uh, he is. Actually, they've got it backwards. It's, it's the, the, the reality of judgment is all tied up with the fact that God is love and sent his son to die for us, to free us from that judgment, which we ourselves have chosen of our free will. So of course, they people, would say that in sending Christ to the cross uh, as, um, uh, as the one who took on the wrath of God, they would see that, you know, the term that they use is cosmic child abuse, um, which I think is... Uh, an idea that is demonic in its inception to me to, to well, refer to substitutionary atonement in that way. Idiotic. But think about it. Uh, it. You know, it doesn't matter what atonement you have. If God sent his son to die that way in the cross, then, and, and for no reason, then, you know, it, like I said, uh, it puts a, a question mark beside the character of God. You could say God was guilty, guilty of cosmic child abuse in that, excuse me, in that sense. Um, so uh, I, think, I think the basic problem is that people don't like the idea of judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's because they're living with a guilty conscience and don't see anything wrong with what they're doing or the kind of life that they're living. They want to live independently. Uh, they want God to endorse their own sinful actions because we're all sinners. All, all of us are. 
We all fall short of the standard of God. Uh, but none of us have the right to ask God to endorse the kind of life that we're living. Um, and that leaves us in the dilemma, of course, of, uh, of condemnation and of judgment. And, but, but in the mercy of God, he sent his son to deliver us from that. And that is the love of God. Uh, so, you know, but it, if, if you're a person who basically underlying it all doesn't think that you've really done anything wrong and that you're a pretty good person and so are the people around you, then, of course, you're going to say, well, I don't agree with the idea of judgment because you don't think you deserve judgment. And that's a fundamental issue because the Bible from beginning to end is clear that we do deserve judgment. Whatever your theory of the atonement is, the Bible is very, very clear that there isn't a single person alive that doesn't deserve judgment. We've all fallen short of the standard of God. And none of us is so righteous or so good that we can lay a claim upon God that he must accept us, that he must endorse our actions, that he must have fellowship with us um, because of our own inherent goodness. The Bible from being, no one could ever read the Bible and say it teaches that. Well, some do. <laughs> oh, they, this goes back, Jake, to the point of the thing that don't really read the Bible, right? That they're what Christianity is, is so far removed from the biblical presentation that it's, it's not Christianity. It's kind of modern moralistic self-help philosophy or however you want to, you know, however you want to put it uh, or whatever philosophical, you know, more ancient philosophical roots they're drawing from, whether they realize it or not, mm -hmm. whatever they believe, Whatever it is, is certainly not biblical Christianity, mm -hmm. as we understand it. Is the best way to think about hell, at, is it as punishment? Um... <laughs> I think that I would, was discussing this with, with somebody this afternoon, actually. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, hell is uh, our choice to live a life independent of and separate separated from God. And um, you could say that, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis put it this way, I could be mistaken, that God honors our choice and he won't force us into relationship with him if we don't want it. Mm -hmm. And in the uh, book of Revelation, uh, where you have to realize that the language is uh, symbolic from beginning to end that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything it means that you have to go back to the Old Testament references the 500 plus references in 404 verses you have to go back to those references to to understand what the symbolism means so mm -hmm. for instance the lake of fire is a symbolic representation of eternal separate God and uh, we know that it's a place of uh, it, it will endure uh, eternally, because Revelation says that, and it w is also a, a, a not a happy place to be. It's it's a place of described as a place of torment, which is the opposite of peace, contentment, and happiness. But the imagery of fire is simply borrowed from the Old Testament um, association of fire with judgment. Mm -hmm. So it isn't necessarily a lake of fire, literal lake of fire. <clears throat> I might get shot by some fundamentalist for saying that. <laughs> uh, but it isn't we can't actually say it's that all we can say is it's a place of judgment and above everything else what we can say is it's a place of separation from the presence of God because it's not in the, you know, the place of God according to Revelation 21-22 is in the eternal New Jerusalem and outside that is the lake of fire so it's the place of separation from God and right, I think that which means it's it, not not just the place of judgment, right? It is the place of wrath. It's the place where we all we all go through judgment. It's it's what's on the other side of the judgment that uh, that we ultimately right. experience. And, the, and 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 above all, the definition of what it is of what that judgment is is separation from god it's what it's outside of the presence of god the eternal temple of god and the lamb it's what's outside of that that's what hell is mm -hmm. 
So uh, in one sense, it's a dreary continuation. I think this might have been Lewis. It's a dreary continuation of this present life. Right. In this present life, everyone still has access to the common grace of God uh, through creation Mm -hmm. uh, and through godly people who are interspersed throughout this world. But in eternity, that's withdrawn. Right. So, uh, and, and, you know, the judgment is that, that the light has come, that Apostle John says in his mm-hmm. gospel, that is that the light has come and men, have chosen to, men and women have chosen to reject it. Mm-hmm. So it is God honoring our decision to live separately from him. Uh, and if we have chosen to live separate from him and we don't want anything to do with him in this life, he won't force us to endure that in the next life. Mm-hmm. And that's how I look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose one other view that someone could take if they did affirm substitutionary atonement is that Christ has died for all of the world's populace across all of the ages. And therefore the price the penalty has been paid um, and all will be redeemed. Right. And again, that's that simplistic view. But you see, the problem with it is that um, the implication is or the the corollary or the, you know, what's involved, let's say, in that view is that God forces people to do something that is against their will and that they, they do not want. Um, because they don't want Christ in their life. So why would God, uh, you know, uh, cause the benefits of of the death of Christ to be applied to them and take them into his presence when they have said they don't want that? Mm -hmm. That overrules free will. And when you overrule free will, you uh, you don't have people that are created in the image of God anymore. And that's the very first thing that, it, and most fundamental thing that's stated about humanity in the Bible is that we are made in the image of God, which is what differentiates Judeo-Christianity from other world religions that often tend to see humanity as arising actually in a ev- very evolutionary manner from the primordial muck, mm-hmm. which is why there's not a lot of difference between Darwin and ancient um, Egyptian, for instance, religion or Indian religion or Greek religion, um, but so that so that um, by contrast, Judeo Christianity teaches that God created men and women in His own image, sovereignly, as something separate from the creation, the rest of creation. And we are image bearers and God honors, therefore, the decisions that we make. Mm -hmm. And that's all tied up with uh, salvation, judgment, and what we conceive of as what what our eternal destiny is. Mm -hmm. So I just think that people make, you know, very superficial statements without any appreciation of the ramifications of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, essentially what we're saying is that uh, the idea that the existence of hell and God being loving, being irreconcilable realities is just not true. God is loving and hell is real. The Bible teaches both and they are not at odds with one another because we have the will to respond to the gospel or to not. Um to reject and Christ. The love, or... And the love of God is most powerfully demonstrated through the existence of eternal judgment because God sent his own son to take judgment upon us that we could be saved from it. And that to me is a far, that's a re, that's real love. That's take judgment real, upon himself that we could be saved from it. Right. That, mm-hmm. that assumes the existence of judgment. And that so that the existence of judgment enhances our understanding of and the depths of God. Uh, the love of God would be, you know, more than if there was no such thing as judgment. Um, what God 
did by sending his son for us shows most powerfully the nature of his love, that it requires the existence of eternal judgment and of the judgment for sin that Jesus took upon his own shoulder. It requires the existence of that in order to also show us what the depth and reality of love is, mm -hmm. of the love of God is. So far from being there being a contradiction between judgment of God and the love of God, there's a very close connection. Mm -hmm. And it's all tied up with the fact that God created us in his own image with the ability to choose whether to accept or reject him. Mm -hmm. And of God's answer, despite the fact that we rebelled against him and rejected him, that God in his mercy sent his son uh, so that that judgment could be lifted. But that is, is our decision. Is that idea of uh, judgment coming upon Christ on the cross, is that what Paul is getting at when he says that uh, he made him to, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God? Yeah, and in Romans 3.25, where he uses the language, um, the altar sacrifice, as Christ is Greek words hilasterion, which is was translated in the old translations as propitiation. It's a difficult, it's kind of a difficult, clunky word, but it conveys the idea of um, the uh, appeasing of, of wrath, which appeases the the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't have, you know, the reason that God is angry against sin is because it's a violation of his purity, it's a violation of everything that is good, it's a violation of anything connected to the true meaning of love. Mm -hmm. That's what God is angry at when that's violated. Um, and evil comes in, in its place. And so God sends his son to take that judgment upon himself, which is the only reason why God, the only thing, it's the only thing that really makes sense of why Jesus came into this world in the first place. At least a major uh, component to it, you know, like a hundred percent Jesus conquered the powers of, of evil in, in and through the cross. Um, in, in, in the, in the process of that, he did that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're right in that there's elements from different, you know, ideas and what Jesus did that could be combined together that you, I don't, I don't see how you can read the New Testament and take uh, and remove the concept of the judgment of God and how God dealt with the judgment of God by sending his son to the cross. Well, the only way that you could is if you began with an unbiblical presupposition, which says that a loving God could never send his son to the cross or a loving God could never, you know, judge. I could never worship a God who dot, dot, dot. So if you start with that presupposition, then you start doing a whole bunch of eisegesis instead of exegesis, and you wind up at a bunch of unbiblical conclusions. Right, because because the fact is, unless you think the, the whole Bible is just a myth, in, case, in which case you're not a Christian anyway, um, the fact is that God did send his son to die on the cross. That, that's one thing that we agree on. And the, son, and the son was involved in that. He didn't come against his own will. Right. Exactly. Which I which, think is the which, part that people tend to forget. Because uh, when God created us in his image, he created us in his image as Father, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is that internal dialogue within the Trinity. Uh uh, so that the, the Son accepts the commission of the Father and is empowered by the Spirit. And we're drawn into that fellowship when we, when we come to Christ. Amen. So let's look at this passage in, in Matthew chapter 12 um, at some of Jesus' own words. Uh, beginning in verse 38, it says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, now this is interesting. The men of Nineveh, which is where jo Jonah was sent, will rise up at the judgment, so he's speaking of the final judgment here, with this generation and condemn it. 
for they repented, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, speaking of himself. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So there's a really interesting depiction um, from Jesus. And after this chapter, he goes into a bunch of parables in chapter 13, a handful of which have to do with judgment as well. Um, what's Jesus getting at here? I mean, like the, these ancient people are going to rise up at the judgment and they're going to judge the generation of Jesus for rejecting him? Well, of course, he's alluding to the fact that uh, the people of Nineveh, or at least a, a good cross-section of them, uh, responded to the preaching of Jonah and repented. Mm -hmm. um, so he's holding them up as an example. Uh, uh, the, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, uh, came from the ends of the earth to seek the face of God. Uh, so she's an example. And then he's contrasting it with some of the people that he himself, as a son of God, preached to mm -hmm. who didn't respond. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, you know, those people responded when they when they had far, far less than the witness that God has sent to you mm -hmm. in the person of his own son. And so your judgment will be severe. That's my reading of that text. And it seems like that judgment, when you go on to read in chapter 13, Jesus is telling these parables. So you have the parable of uh, the the weeds and the wheat. You have the parable of the net, um, both of which in, include an idea of, of judgment. And in that place, so Matthew 13, uh, 41 and 42, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and, and here's this idea of fire, picking up on that same theme, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's that idea that you said that it, God's judgment is his love because it is the removal of evil, the removal of the causes of evil, so that uh, those who follow Christ um, are set free, I, says, I suppose, from the uh, oppressive powers of temptation to evil. Jesus goes on in the parable of the net, same kind of idea, verse 49, it will be at the end of the age, angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is an interesting thing because uh, sometimes I'll hear people say that, that this fire is a refining fire. It, it uh it has a way of uh, removing these sinful impurity from people so that they are made fit for the kingdom of God. That doesn't seem to be the depiction that Jesus is giving here. And it doesn't seem to be the depiction that John gives in the book of revelation either as though, or some kind of temporary. Um, no, thing. it isn't. And then, you know, uh, James talks about, and Peter talks about, I think James, uh, uh, the the uh, James and Peter both talk about the uh, the the refining aspect of fire, but it's clearly in the context of um, Christians that are being addressed. It's it's clearly God doing a work in the lives of Christians, which is you know maturing their faith as they are facing persecution and hardship. Mm -hmm. That's a totally different world from you know the picture of eternal judgment of people who've completely rejected god right. so it's taking you know a reference in a completely different context mm -hmm. and misappropriating it and dumping it into something which is totally to totally the opposite and the dominant metaphor the dominant use of fire in the bible is undoubtedly judgment and where uh you know on those uh, several occasions where the scriptures take the idea of fire and re refer to it as something that's, you know, like gold, your your faith like gold is being, which mm -hmm. though it perishes in the fire, you know, et cetera. But your faith will come through that. 
in and and be purified um the it's a it's a secondary use of the idea of fire is um you know the associated with the fallen state of this world uh which is under judgment insofar as it impacts the lives of people who want to serve god and it's like okay god will take even the bad things of this world which stand under his judgment you know the persecution and hostility toward god and toward his people god will take even those bad things and turn them around for good in the hands of his people in the sense that when we face the fire god brings us through it even as he brought daniel through it and and we draw closer to god and his name is glorified so but they're two totally different you know you can't sort of take the the one uh idea take it rip it out of its context and put it into a different context which is completely different in meaning you know, i guess it ties back to that idea of um like I was saying, like we all endure judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's just about what's on the other side of our judgment, whether we are in Christ or whether we rejected Christ has a, has everything to do with the outcome. Um, I, I reminded as well of, I can't remember if it's first or second Corinthians where Paul talks about, you know, building with gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, and straw. And it's all going to endure fire what we built with will determine what we end up with. The person who is a follower of Christ, even if they built with wood, hay and straw, they'll lose everything, but they'll still be saved. Um, but the person who rejected Christ is, is uh, headed for a, a different reality. Jesus himself said, um, uh, everybody will be salt. Was it salted with judgment, salted with fire? Is this kind of the same idea? salted with fire yeah uh well salt was a preservative um you know i i think the idea is that when you enter the presence of god uh um you know it, it we come to it through the blood of christ and uh our sins will be um forgiven um but we can't diminish the fact that we come into the presence of a holy God. And I, I don't know what happens in that moment um, when people meet the Lord. What I think is that we realize uh, in the face of the holiness of God, um, our complete inadequacy and the incredible nature and magnitude of the love of God, that in that moment when we pass into eternity, he, we realize he's accepted us mm -hmm. in spite of where we've come from. So there's an awesomeness of the judgment of God mixed with the a realization of his incredible love. Uh, that's the best that I can, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't believe that when we come into the presence of God, that God is going to, you know, give us a great list of all of our sins and wrap us over in the knuckles and then say, but fortunately, you know, I sent my son to die for you. Right. Um, you miserable sinner. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't see... I don't read it that way. I read it as being, we, we do, you, you, you have to come before the judgment seat of Christ because Christ does judge the living and the dead and every single person. Uh, but just because you come before the judgment seat of Christ, um, you know, it, I mean, the, the, the verdict is passed either one way or the other. So uh, for the Christian, that is a moment of great joy when we realize again that because of what Christ did for us, that the way to eternal fellowship and life with God is open. Yeah, I guess one of the things that's helpful for me, and, and maybe this is overly simplistic, in my mind, I draw a distinction between judgment and wrath because I see God's judgment as a, a manifestation of his mercy in many senses in that his judgment is an invitation for us to correct. So uh, it, it, does Jesus use his words even in, in the first couple of chapters of Revelation when he's talking to the seven churches, you know, the ones that are astray, uh, he says, I'm going to come and I'm, I'm going to judge. Um, 
similar to the idea where Paul says to the woman who's sleeping with his stepmom in, in Corinth, you know, I've already judged this person, Paul says, that uh, handing them over to Satan, that they, um, uh, that their flesh may suffer, but ultimately so that their spirit would not. So, so Paul is judging them and his judgment is a mercy because he wants them to experience the implications of their sin so that they will correct and come back to Christ. So in that sense, I see judgment as a mercy, whereas wrath, you know, in Romans 1, God gives them up to his wrath, um, gives them over to his wrath, which is, uh, I suppose, in, in my mind, more final. And again, that that might be overly simplistic, but... Uh, no, I don't. And I think it's in 1 Corinthians that Paul, there's <clears throat> a word play on, <clears throat> pardon me, the words discipline and judgment, uh, which are similar in Greek. Uh but one signifies um, a redemptive disciplining, uh, the other of which is a, a judgment of condemnation. So God, God does come to us uh, in in a measure of judgment in the in the sense that you know you might have to discipline your child. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're coming to them in judgment. You're judging. You know you shouldn't run into the street in front of that car or you shouldn't have you know treated your sister badly or you shouldn't have done this or that that is judgment but it is not condemnation right it is it is a judgment um that is is a judgment of discipline and correction which is an expression of love which is designed to draw your child into closer into relationship with you and to be to produce good results in their lives and and results that will be good for them uh it's not a condemnation which so is I'm, the other... i do th- yeah i do think god deals with us that way when we go through the refiner's fire often god is pointing out the things that are out of order in our life why so that they can be healed mm-hmm. which is kind of one of the themes i remember from uh i think it's in 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 your book uh Mystery Explained and, and also G.K. Beale's uh, that you did with him on, on Revelation. Um, the idea of like many comings, like there's not just a first and a second coming of Christ, although those are, you know, the, the primary comings. But there's also this idea of Revelation of like Jesus says to the churches, I'm going to come. <laughs> and and there's, you know, there's going to be consequences to his coming. Um, and. Uh, I just was reminded of this hilarious video that someone put together where uh, it was from the election uh, and it was like a, it was a mashup and Kamala Harris was saying, don't you dare come, don't come, whatever you do, do not come. And then it just cuts to a clip of Donald Trump going, I'm going to come. <laughs> anyway, it's oh. a hel- <laughs> And then, and then the, the, the entire uh, crowd just erupts in applause. They're two totally separate moments, I think. But the person who cut it together was uh, it was hilarious. Anyway, so um, I digress. But uh, this idea of like Jesus does come, and and um, and he does. There is judgment. There's no condemnation, Romans eight. But there there is judgment, and in 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 one sense, his judgment is a mercy to get us to submit to him. It is. And because in that submission is life. Yep. What's Jesus on about this? You know this this gnashing and we- gnashing of teeth and weeping. I mean that that sounds pretty severe to me. It, it, that sounds like you know Jesus is the manifestation of the love of God. People say, um, but he also seems like he's the manifestation of the of the judgment of God. Well, I. Well. I think- I think it's it's just a, a a way of saying that, uh, you know, it it may well be that people are aware in the eternal judgment uh, when th- they may well be aware that they have chosen the wrong path, and um, they, therefore it becomes a place of sadness and lamentation. Mm. Uh, I'm the weeping, gnashing of teeth, uh, you know, biblical metaphor for sadness, extreme sadness and regret. So the suggestion is that people who are, uh, you know, who, people who um, choose, whether you call 
hell or, you know, everlasting punishment or, you know, the place of eternal separation from God, however you refer to it, that those people will will live in a sadness and regret, a great mm-hmm. sadness and regret because they'll have some awareness at that point mm-hmm. of, you know, the kind of choices that they made all their lives that they blotted out and they can't blot it out anymore. It's just there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's my, it's just, I guess, in my part, I think we have to be really careful not to, uh, you know, like the medieval, um, uh, the medieval um, painters who went to great lengths to depict, you know, mm-hmm. eternal torment and so on and, and put into it a lot of imagery and stuff that isn't in the Bible at all. I just think we have to be careful to leave what the Bible says at what the Bible says and not embellish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and I, is it right to read verses like that and embrace them as truth and at the same time wish and will that that would be nobody's destiny? Right. Well, it's the will of God that no one should perish. That's what the Bible says. And mm. and it shouldn't be our desire that anyone would perish, even people that we can't stand or whatever, mm. even horrible people. You know, our desire should still be that they would repent. But the fact is that some of them don't and won't. You know, and if you, if you took an example of, you know, someone like Adolf Hitler or someone that had done incredible evil, Mm-hmm. And if you said, well, you know, we're all going to the same place, then that renders the concept of the love of God meaningless. Totally. How could God extend his love and acceptance mm-hmm. to someone who had been the very epitome of the opposite of anything that we would consider to be love and decency? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it possible then that God can will that nobody would perish and at the same time will that those who reject him uh, would, would get what they desire, which is perishing. Like those two wills can exist simultaneously. Well, it's God's desire. His will His is in the, the will in the sense of his desire, his wish is not that anyone should perish. Got it. That is that is the heart of God, because if that weren't the heart of God, then God would be some kind of fiend himself. He would you'd be saying, well, God delights in the fact that people that he's created, a percentage of them are, you know, going to suffer and suffer mm-hmm. eternal punishment. That's not God's heart at all. Mm-hmm. And it's and he, he proved it by sending his son. Uh, he did everything he possibly could to rescue people. So he wants them to be saved. But at the same time, we're image bearers, and God honors that uh, image that he has placed within us, Mm -hmm. and therefore honors our decision. Mm -hmm. So I guess my final thought on this or question, there's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Is it that hell, when, when hell was created by God? Obviously, being omniscient had to have some knowledge that more than the devil and his angels would wind up there. Can it be said that God did not create hell with humanity in mind? Well, or am I thinking I, about that all wrong? It's impossible to say. I mean, what we do know is that the fall, uh, the the uh, the uh, you know the fall of Satan took place before um, the creation of the cosmos. So that the intention of God to uh, to designate a place of eternal punishment came of necessity before the creation of the universe because that was a decision that God made as a result of what happened before we were ever around. And I think that explains the meaning of that statement that the hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's what I would take that to be. But even in that initial pre-cosmos uh, fall of Satan, he's not bound there because he's, you know, 
Genesis chapter 2, he's hanging out in the garden. Uh, I'm not following what you're saying. Well, you're saying that uh, hell is created for the devil and his angels, which that's what Jesus says. Um, and that's that's God's judgment upon uh, the demonic powers that they would be bound in hell, ultimately, permanently, eternally. In the interim, right. they're 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 pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And and uh, um, uh, I mean, in another sense, Revelation talks about satan being bound at the cross so the implication is that prior to the cross uh satan had uh, a much freer hand mm -hmm. uh because he had the ability to accuse people because we've all fallen and done wrong mm -hmm. uh, so god allows sovereignly allows satan and his agents uh to uh um uh, uh, be present in the universe mm -hmm. that he created uh and their their purpose obviously is revenge against you know the judgment of god and casting them out of heaven and so on and so now they want to take out their uh anger on those um, who are created in god's own image on god's image bearers which mm -hmm. is humanity mm -hmm. uh and you know that's part of the interplay of um the the create of our being created with the ability to accept god or to reject him um the uh you know the the choice is between cosmic good and cosmic evil and god allows us to come into contact with the serpent to test our hearts mm -hmm. that's my reading of the first couple chapters of the bible Mm -hmm. that God allows us to face the serpent mm -hmm. in order to test what's in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because ultimately if our love for God is real, we have to um, be able to be faced with that choice of whether we want him or not. And and he allowed his own son to be faced with that choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we failed the choice. <laughs> we failed, but didn't. That's exactly. the good news. Yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. why Jesus is so such a critical part of the biblical story. It had mm -hmm. to happen. And it's why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times mm -hmm. in his response to the devil, because the three areas where Israel failed God in terms of testing God and idolatry and and, and so on and and living, you know, through uh their own provision or the things of this world rather than every word that comes out of the mouth of God, the areas where Israel failed, Satan comes along and, and puts the, basically the same temptations to Jesus that he, he used successfully with regard to Israel. And Jesus quotes those three texts in Deuteronomy, uh, to say, no, uh, I'm going to obey what God commanded where Israel failed. I'll succeed. Which is a picture of the uh, the Christus Victor element to Christ coming both in his life and, and through the cross. The devil thinking yep. that he had destroyed mm -hmm. the Son of God, but the Son of God triumphing over him uh, through the cross, which is wonderful. And and we are called to triumph over him in the same kind of way. That's Revelation, what is it, 12? Somewhere in there. 13? That we love not our lives unto death. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, and I know the uh, what you were saying a moment ago in terms of the activity of Satan and demons in the earth essentially is the um, the amillennial view, Satan being bound at the cross and, and the resurrection um, and Revelation 20 talking about how he's bound with a chain with respect to the deceiving of the nations, with respect to the advancement of the gospel, but he's not totally bound in the sense that he's uh disallowed you know any kind of activity in the earth he absolutely is and and still yes, is, he knows his time is short john says and is uh is seeking to cause as much chaos as he can yeah but ultimately his destiny is sealed and that destiny is uh hell 
the lake of fire, eternal punishment. That's where he's headed. Um, and ultimately, is that the place where every everyone who rejects God, that's the reality that they embrace is life without God. And it's all in that same category. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's what's clear. I mean, that's what the Bible makes in many places. Because yeah. Jesus talked a lot about judgment. You know, he talked a lot about that. Uh, I can't remember. I, I wouldn't want to be quoted exactly, but I I believe I've heard it said more than once that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But certainly, it's you can't launder that out of Jesus' preaching. Yeah. Well, it's not incidental la- that in the parable of the weeds, he says that, the uh, the good seed, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, but the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So there's absolutely a corollary between uh, those who reject Christ and their relation to uh, the influence, even the fact that they are the the uh, the progeny of the devil himself. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting conversation and uh, a necessary one to have because people have a hard time with judgment. But I think the word that I would leave people with is um, in Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God. That's the book of Romans. Um, and that there is no condemnation. And the invitation is uh, is loud and clear for us to to come and to embrace the son of God who laid down his life on our behalf. Um, and in him, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our, that's our inheritance. That's our reality. We receive the Holy spirit. We get to walk with God and, and have beautiful relationship with God and, and spend our days inviting people into that relationship. This is the love of God. It is also the love of God that he would judge evil. Um, and that is what makes God uh, just is that, he, there is judgment. He even provides judgment for his people through the form of discipline, which leads us continually back to him because we don't get it all sorted out uh, on the first day of our salvation. It's a journey of learning to submit to Christ more and more. And we need discipline for that, as any parent knows a child needs. For those who ultimately reject him on the other side of judgment is the experience of wrath. Uh, because God does have wrath. The Bible makes that clear. To read that out of the scripture uh, is to, I think, to embrace a lie um, willfully. And so the role of the Christian is to invite people into the truth, which is that God sent his son to go to the cross to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the Vast Podcast. We'll catch you next week. 